Uh, well, brothers and sisters, over the past few weeks, we have been discussing a variety of doctrines uh, and comparing them to the false views of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, we have discussed the standards of authority. For us, the, our standard of authority is the word of God alone. Uh, we believe that the word of God is the certain and only certain rule of faith and obedience. Uh, Rome does not. Uh, Rome believes that uh, the word of God is important, but not sufficient. Uh, they believe that uh, the tradition is just as equally important and authoritative as God's word. Rome also believes that the Pope, uh, when speaking from his seat of authority, speaks as if God himself were speaking. And they use that also as a form of authority. Uh, there are also other authorities. Uh, the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church is an authority. Uh, we'll talk about some other things like the Apocrypha tonight. Uh, but there are many authorities, it seems, in the Roman Catholic Church. Let, let me also say this. Tonight we are going to be talking about the doctrine of purgatory. In the past we've been talking about how I don't know if and I don't believe that most who are in the Roman Catholic Church Know this and believe this. We talked about justification. We talked about authority. Uh, we talked about the mass, which is a big one. Uh, uh, probably the biggest one that we've discussed in terms of what we believe the Roman Catholic Church and its members, let's just say its members, know and believe about what the mass is. Tonight, as we discuss purgatory, I do believe that most Roman Catholics know what this doctrine is about. As a matter of fact, uh, if I were to ask you, you who have grown up Roman Catholic, or uh, even you who don't know much about it but have heard of it, most of you would be able to accurately, for the most part, summarize what purgatory is. Go to the, your normal Roman Catholic. I'm sure that if you were to ask them, what is purgatory, they would give you a pretty sufficient answer as to what it is. Uh, we would usually begin our study by defining a term in order to uh, further explain what it is. But uh, this doctrine is more complex than a simple definition. I don't think we would be able to just tell you purgatory is dot, 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 and you would have a full understanding. Rather... I think that there is a uh, there is required further explanation in order to understand this doctrine. So tonight I'm going to be reading uh, a, a few quotes. I'm going to try not to to bore you or, or destroy you with these quotes, but I think they are important in order for us to get a grasp of them of this doctrine. But also, as we read some of the quotes, we'll go back and further kind of break down what these things are saying, so that we can have a better understanding of this damnable heresy of the purgatory. Uh, let's begin by saying this. Rome will say that this doctrine is not a major doctrine. Uh, Rome will say that this doctrine is not a major doctrine. It's found within their catechism. Uh, it is a part of their official belief and practices but they will say that it's not major. If you go to YouTube and just Google or, or just YouTube uh, teachings on purgatory, you'll find many who are trying to give you a kind of 
popcorn explanation of purgatory say, let me just say at the beginning, this is not a major doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. But I don't really see how it can't be. I don't see how purgatory cannot be a major doctrine uh, when it specifically deals with what takes place, what transpires when the body leaves the soul. Don't you think that's important? Don't you think that's a kind of a major issue? What will happen to my soul when it leaves my body? I think it's a major issue. This is an important doctrine, and it is one that has deceived the masses for decades upon decades. Uh, so what is purgatory? Uh, where did this doctrine come from? We're going to be looking at some passages tonight. Is it biblical or non-biblical? Well, let's explore some of these questions together. First, I'd like you to patiently listen, if you don't mind, to what Rome describes from their catechism, their official doctrines, on what purgatory is. This is their official and therefore infallible teaching on the doctrine of purgatory. This is Catechism 1030, 1030. Listen to what it says. All who die, some of the phrasing, in God's grace and friendship, that, that is someone who is a believer, but still imperfectly purified. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed Assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification. So as to achieve, listen to this, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Did you hear that? After your body dies or after you, your soul leaves your body, there is a place of purification that you must go to. In order to, to achieve, the word says, achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Uh, the very next question, or the very next answer, 1031, 1031. The church, they say, gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect. Purgatory is the final purification of the elect after death. Which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The purification that those uh, that these people experience in purgatory is different than what people, the damned, experience in hell. The church, they say, formulated her doctrine on faith of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. If you wanted to see how this doctrine developed, you need to go to the Council of Florence and the Council of Trent. I'm not going to read the statements from Florence and Trent. But they're readily available. They say the tradition of the church. What authority? By reference of certain texts of scripture. Speaks of a cleansing fire. As for certain lesser faults. We all know those as venial sins. Lesser faults. Lesser sins. We must believe that before the final judgment. There is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever, listen to this phrase or this scripture, whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age or in the age to come. You, you know that scripture. That's the unpardonable sin. It won't be forgiven in this age or in the age to come, they say. We'll talk more about that in a moment. From this sentence, they say, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age. But certain others 
in the age to come. Did you hear that? Rome believes that this is the, the end of their second, uh, the second portion. Rome believes that if you have committed a certain sin, it can be forgiven possibly in this age. But if not in the age to come, the age to come is what they define as purgatory. Here's the last one. It's a longer one. So uh, hang on if you might, if you will. This is 1032 of the catechism. This teaching is also, this is from their documents. I'm not making something up. It's what their documents actually say. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead. Already mentioned in sacred scripture. What's sacred scripture? Therefore, Judas Maccabeus. You've ever heard that name before? How about Maccabees? Maccabees is a book of the Apocrypha. Uh, so, so, so-called extra biblical books that are found in Roman Catholic Bibles. They are gaining this uh, prayers from the dead from 2nd Maccabees, where it says, therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers in the suffrage for them, praying for dead people. I hope that you don't pray for those who are dead. Above all the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that, thus purified, they may attain the beatific vision of God. Pray for them that they may attain, receive, have the beatific vision of God. You are familiar with the beatific vision. Pastor Isaiah has taught about that. They go on to say the church also commends. Here's how you can get someone out of purgatory. Almsgiving, that's giving to the poor. Indulgences, giving to the church. And works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. Good works, works that show that you have repented can be given to those who are in the dead trying to earn good works in order to get out of purgatory. Listen to their scripture reference. If Job's sons were purified... By their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt that the off, that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Job offered sacrifices for his children. Why wouldn't you be able to offer good works, good deeds, money for yours that you love? Let us not hesitate to help those who have died. Can you help anyone who's dead? And to offer our prayers for them. Well... Please excuse the long quotes, and I don't enjoy reading Roman Catholic heresy. But it is important for us to get an idea of what this doctrine means from Rome's own mouth. Rome takes passages like, these are important for you to write down, Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven: Nothing unclean shall enter heaven. And Habakkuk one thirteen, which says, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. They take passages like these to mean that uh, when those who are friends of God die, that they must be purified before they enter heaven. You are a friend of God, but you're not pure. You have received God's grace, they say, but you're not yet pure. No sinner can enter into heaven. And... uh, Let's be truthful. They're correct. In one sense, no sinner can enter into heaven. It is true that no sinner will enter into heaven. Anyone who has rejected 
the obedience and sufferings of Christ on behalf of sinners remains in sin and they will not be allowed into glory. That's true. But if you have placed your faith in Christ alone, if you have rejected your own righteousness, if you have repented of your sin, then you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint. And you don't enter into heaven a sinner. You enter into heaven covered in the blood of Christ, which makes you righteous, not impure. Rome has a number of questions to answer. They have a number of questions that they must give an account for. How can someone be in God's grace and be a friend of God and yet at the same time be be, uh, imperfectly purified? How can they, they say, be perfectly purified eventually and at the same time uh, impurified and yet at the same time be assured of eternal salvation? Uh, They say that you are impure. But salvation is assured to you. It's one or the other. And if salvation is assured to you, even though you are impure, how will you achieve purity? We've talked about this a lot where where we say, uh, well, Rome will say, we don't believe in salvation by works. It sure sounds like salvation by works to me. It sure does sound like there's, there's some efforts on man's part in order to enter into final glory. How do we receive the grace of God, brothers and sisters? We receive the grace of God by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, When we are found to be in Christ through repentance and faith, we are true friends of God. God graciously gives us this faith. We are uh, repenting of our sins. We place our faith in him. We become friends of God. What more is necessary? Rome says, but there's one final step. You must go into this place of purification in order to be purged of your remaining sin. There are things that that uh, I listened to one person yesterday. There are things that we die still holding on to and still desiring. Those things that we hold on to and still desire will be taken care of, purged or burned with fire. But not like the damned. In purgatory. The person who has place their faith in God, in Christ, receive the righteousness of Christ through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that they are they are assured eternal life through the perfect work of Christ alone, not through any work or additional work that they can do or must add to in some kind of place of purification. You are right now being purified. That You are right now being readied for entrance into glory. Rome claims that those who are friends of God have been given grace so that after they die, they can undergo purification in purgatory and then enter heaven. Grace is given to you so that you can work to enter into heaven. Those who are not friends of God, they don't receive this gift. They don't get the the, the right to go into purgatory. They go straight to hell. But you, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you get a second chance to get rid of all the remaining sins. It's really hard to believe Rome when she says we don't believe in salvation by works. Because everything that she says shows that they believe the contrary, that they do. 
It is a, a type of punishment, though. It's a, a purification by fire. But it's not as severe as the one that the damned received. Where did, this, where did they get this from? Let's go to Luke chapter 12. Uh, these ideas and doctrines, they're not from nowhere. They come from somewhere. And, and we need to understand, I think, rightly where they come from and at least see what they think they're seeing. Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> Let's pray that that five-hour energy that I took holds off for another hour. Uh, Luke chapter 12. Uh, dear brother, uh, Deacon Ray, would you mind, brother, turning the, the AC on? Thank you, brother. Uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 41. We'll read to verse 48. Uh, here's where they get this idea of uh, going into purgatory, receiving uh, a certain kind of punishment, but not one as severe as the damned. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone as well? Everyone else as well. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their nations I'm sorry, rations, my eyes are going bad, at the proper time. <clears throat> Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. There's the one example. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Here's the second one. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and to get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. That's the other example. Now, Rome takes these next two to be two separate examples. We have an example of believers and we have an example of unbelievers going on. Verse 47. And that slave there's another one who, they say, knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will, will receive many lashes. You see, it's, it's a lesser punishment. And the last one. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging, a little bit different, will receive a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom... They haven't, they entrusted much of him. They will ask all the more. You will notice that there are those who know what God requires. There are those who don't know, uh, who don't believe what God says and uh, don't believe in the return of Christ. There are those who do not obey and there are those who simply do not know. Four examples. Uh, what Rome does, and these are examples of all humanity, what Rome does is they are taking each of these. They are taking the first one as ones who enter into heaven. That is reserved only for those saints who have been venerated. Those whom the church deems, isn't it? It's interesting. The church deems them as being worthy of entering into heaven. But all of the, the lesser ones, that would be you and I. We would be those who either did not know and would receive a little punishment or who knew 
but didn't do as we were told, we would receive a, an increased punishment. The place where that punishment would take place or the purification of us would take place would be in purgatory. Whereas the second goes straight to the damned, the place of hell. These uh, ignorant people, they essentially believe in the existence of God. They may be ignorant of the existence of Christ, but they have not given themselves over to knowledge. They are the least punished because they simply just did not know. Christ is not speaking about here a place of purification for all of those different kinds of people. There are only two places. Their own catechism states that this place of purgatory is for the friend of God. It is for the one who has received God's grace, not for everyone. Luke 12 is speaking then about degrees of punishment for the wicked. The passage begins with the one who knows and obeys God. And then Christ explains the degree of punishment for others in another place. That is hell. You either go to heaven and you receive rewards or you go to hell and there are degrees of punishment in hell. We believe that. Our confession, chapter 31, I'll read to you what our confession says concerning uh, two locations. Our confession, chapter 31, paragraph 1 states, The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, substance, uh, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into paradise where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. Our confession says there's only two places, and the Bible acknowledges no other place. You are either in heaven or you are in hell. Uh, For Rome to say that uh, there is a place for you to go, for, for you to be Uh, purified the scripture knows nothing of it this is why rome takes this doctrine from a passage like second maccabees you've heard of it again second maccabees it's considered to be an apocryphal book meaning apocryphal meaning it was never considered as part of the canon of scripture it was never a part of those identified books of the bible in some cases it was seen as useful at times but not canonical during the council of trent It was deemed infallible. Maccabees was deemed infallible by who? By the Roman Catholic Church. Rome believed that they had the authority to determine what is authoritative and what is not. The apocryphal book is not authoritative because it was not written by any recognized prophet. It's not recognized because it was not accepted by the Old Testament Jews. Christ and his apostles never quote from the apocrypha. The early church fathers also rejected the apocryphal books. Uh, Within them is found historical and geographical errors. And none make the claim of being God's word. There's much reasons to reject the apocrypha then. This statement from Matthew 12 is speaking about 
uh, you've heard about, we talked about uh, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. They take the age to come as being purgatory, a place where your sins could be forgiven. This passage in Matthew chapter 12 can mean one of two things. That blasphemy of the Holy Spirit could be forgiven after one dies in an age or a time to come called purgatory. It could mean that. Or it could mean that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Age means world. In this age world or in the age world to come. That is here now or there later. Here on earth, it will not be tolerated. And it will never be tolerated, even in heaven, if such a thing were possible. I think I will take the latter. It is not to say that it is impossible, uh, but rather uh, it is true. Uh, this is true for all times. I don't know what that last statement means. I'm going to discard that last statement. Uh, how do we know that there is not an in-between time? Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once and for all. And then comes what? Judgment. Hebrews says, does not say, it is appointed for men once to die once for all, and then after this comes purgatory. Now, just because the word purgatory is not found in the Bible is not a good reason for us to reject it. Because there's plenty of things, plenty of words that, that we believe that are not in the Bible that we readily accept. Interpretation is the issue. Authority is the issue. And when they interpret, we find them to have false interpretations and the authorities that they use are not authoritative. Judgment after death, not judgment after or not purgatory after death. Uh, the catechism gives these three important paragraphs. Again, go to the Council of Florence of 1439. I'm not going to read that to you, uh, but it's very important. In 1032 of the catechism, and we're going to kind of wind this down. It's very disturbing, 1032 especially, in speaking about prayers for the dead, works of penance, almsgiving, indulgences. They are all taken up for the dead. Uh, one only need to read the book of Job to see that Job's sacrifices did not purify his sons. Job functioned as a priest in his home. Job offered sacrifices in accordance to what would later be commanded by the law of the law of God in the book of Moses. Offering sacrifices as a priest on behalf of the people is what uh, the priest would normally do. It did not purify people, though. It was only pointing to a purification that could be found in Christ alone. The sacrifices of Job were to no avail because those sacrifices could not stop his sons from dying by the hand of God. Nor could they bring them back from the dead. The Lord Jesus told about a parable concerning what can be done for people who are dead. Let's go there. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. You know this parable well, I think. It is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Let's read this together. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. 
Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham from afar and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, that you send to him, uh, send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded of anyone, even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man, the rich man is presumed to be a Pharisee. One who lived in accordance to the law of God, one who knew the law of God. And Lazarus is said to be among the poor, among the refused. But Lazarus loved God in spite of his lack of prestige in the community. And the one dies, the rich man, and the other dies, the poor man. And it's interesting that while one of the men may have been lauded for his great love for God, he was burning in hell. And while the other one would have been insignificantly insignificant and ignored in his lifetime, he was being uh, comforted in the bosom of Abraham. And what was the request of the rich man? Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in torment. Not the torment or fire of purgatory, but the punishment that is reserved for all those who are wicked. The request is denied. No, you receive comfort. Lazarus did not. Well, then send Lazarus to go and warn my brothers so that they will not come into this place of torment, not a place of waiting, not a place of purging. It will be a place of eternal fire. And what is the response of Abraham? The response of Abraham is this. The word of God is enough. The word of God is enough. The word of God is sufficient. If they will not listen to the word of God, they won't listen to anything. You see that Lazarus or the rich man was requesting uh, God's word plus something else. He was requesting, if you will, Christ plus something else. He was saying the word is not sufficient because if it was, then why am I here? I knew the word. I read the word, but it wasn't good enough for me. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is sufficient. It is enough. 
Uh, we don't need Maccabees. We don't need Trent. Nor do we need a purgatory. All we need is God's word and faith in Christ alone. And Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient for our salvation. Christ is, is sufficient for us to be purified. For we are purified in Christ alone. Not Christ plus something else. I say to you saints, that's just where Rome is. Rome is in a place where they say, but God's not enough. Christ is not enough. Hebrews 7.23, Christ prays for us. We don't need our brothers and sisters or people who are still alive to pray for us. Christ prays for us. Hebrews 7.27, Christ offered himself once for all. There's no need for anything else. Hebrews 9.12, the blood of Christ, through the blood of Christ, he obtained an eternal redemption. Hebrews 10.12, Christ has been made a sacrifice for his elect. And he sits down showing that the work, his work is complete. There's no work you need to add to the work of Christ. Hebrews 10.13, it is a perfect sacrifice, not a flawed sacrifice. You will not need to burn off the rest of your remaining sin in purgatory. It's been destroyed. It's been covered by Christ. It's been dealt with on the cross. Hebrews 10.17, our sins are no longer remembered. God is not going to put you into a place of waiting and make you or recount to you all of your sins and require you to pay for them. There is no longer any offering for sin. John 13, 9, you are clean. If your faith is in Christ, you are clean. Nothing more is, is needed. Again, Rome's problem is sufficiency. Christ is necessary, but not sufficient. Grace is necessary, but not sufficient. Faith is necessary, but not sufficient. The word of God is necessary, but not sufficient. It's no wonder, dear ones, why the cry of the reformers was sola fide, sola gratia, sola scriptura, and sola Christus. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, Christ alone. If I am in Christ, I am purified. He is my holiness, my sanctification, my all in all. Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if I am in Christ, I am a new creature. That all sins have passed away. Behold, the new is here. Christ's atonement is an all-sufficient atonement. Do you see why there is no peace in Rome? I pray again that these lessons have been not so that you can uh, degrade your Catholic brothers and sisters, family, that is, mothers and fathers, relatives or friends. I pray that it is so that you can be a better witness to them. That you could ask them, what's your view on what happens to you after this life? Let me say to you that if you think that you can do what you want and pay for it later in purgatory... There is no giving of the poor that will ever get you out. There is no giving to the church that will ever get you out. There is not one thing that we can pray that will ever cause you to escape from that imaginary place because it doesn't exist. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam. And in Adam all die. But in Christ all live. Dear saints... Where are you this evening? Are you in Christ? 
Are you making the same mistake as Rome? Are you thinking that there is an amount of church attendance, prayer, reading, giving even, that can make you acceptable before God? Or are you doing all that you do out of love for God, not out of desire to earn something from God that you could never earn? We just learned in our uh, Sunday school class, the love of God, it is free and unchanging. It is free and unchanging. Nothing that you can do to pay for it. And thank God, it won't change. We change. Our love changes. God's love does not and God's love will not. Praise be to God. Let's pray.